taken from Matthew chapter 9. We will begin, uh, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 8. Again, Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. This is the word of God. Listen to it. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think, think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowds saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you, O Lord, for what it teaches us. And how it reveals to us, O Lord, that Christ Jesus has not only the authority to heal a paralyzed man, but more than that, Lord, he has authority to forgive his sins. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us this morning, and that you would cause us to rely upon the Lord Jesus Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, many of you are familiar with Martin Lloyd-Jones, and if you're not familiar with Martin Lloyd-Jones, you should get yourselves familiar with him. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a young physician in England in the 1920s, and early in his life, he had the desire to become a physician. Early in his life, he wanted to uh, help uh, to heal people and to work upon them and their sicknesses and their ailments, and he was, by all accounts, an astute uh, student of medicine. He studied medicine in London, and he practiced there for several years. He worked among the poorest of the people in this great city. And he did this for several years before he realized that he was only able to help people in a certain way. He was only able to treat a part of their uh, problem. He saw that the people that he was treating were in greater need of spiritual healing than of physical healing. And so after a few years of toiling in medicine, he determined that it was the Lord's will for him. He discovered the Lord's will, I should say, realizing he needed to go into full-time ministry. He needed to minister to these people's souls uh, rather than uh, simply their bodies. And so he returned uh, to his native Wales and began uh, a ministry there. Now the passage that you have just heard, the passage that we have just read together, speaks to exactly the situation that Lloyd-Jones was dealing with in his own heart, in his own life, as he, uh, as he uh, practiced medicine on these people. It speaks to the age-old condition of humanity. You see, the primary problem that every man and woman and child faces is not that our bodies break down. It's not that we fall ill. It's not that one day we will all go to the grave. That's not our primary problem. Our primary problem is that we are racked through and through with a specific type of disease. We're racked with the disease of sin. 
And we are helpless against it. We cannot do anything about it. We're helpless. When we are sinners, our greatest problems that we face, uh, a mighty and holy God and our sin to this God is offensive to Him. And so as we come before Him, as we stand before Him, if we have nothing other than ourselves to rely upon, we are utterly devoid of hope. We're utterly without any hope. We have nothing to stand upon. And so when Jesus encounters a person like this paralyzed man who was lying ill on his bed, his primary concern, knowing the condition of the, of the hearts of humanity, his primary concern is what? To deal with the man's sin. And secondarily, he deals with his body. First, he pronounces that the man's sins are forgiven. And then, he heals the man's ailment. He heals his infirmity. And so I'd ask you as we go through this passage this morning to consider this. The great physician is the healer of souls. And to all who believe in him, he promises the forgiveness of sins. The great physician is the healer of souls. And to all who believe in him, he promises the forgiveness of sins. I've divided this passage up into three sections. The first two verses I've titled Triage. The second three verses, uh, verses 3 to 5, I've titled, Who Blasphemes? And then finally, verses 6 to 8, The Authority of the Son of Man. Again, verses 1 and 2, triage. Verses 3 to 5, Who Blasphemes? And then finally, verses 6 to 8, The Authority of the Son of Man. So let's first look at verses 1 and 2. Uh, Many of you, or some of you, I should say, many of you may be in the medical profession. You've been around it long enough, at least, to know that uh, in any medical emergency, the first action that health care specialists take is to triage uh, the injuries that they see, to triage the conditions of those who are coming uh, at them. They assess, they prioritize the injuries of the victims. And so as they make these prioritizations, uh, they see that a person who is hemorrhaging blood uh, takes precedence over someone who has a broken bone. They've got to make an assessment of the need and the quick treatment that is, uh, that is necessary there. And so in the first verse of chapter 9, we learn that Jesus and his disciples, they've, they've just come across, back across the Sea of Galilee, and they've come to this place, uh, his own town, uh, Capernaum. And in verse 2, uh, we read that, uh, Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, in the parallel passage, passage in uh, Mark 2 and again in Luke 5, we see that, that Jesus, uh, 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 Jesus is in a home preaching. He's in a home, and these men, these friends of this paralyzed man, they try to get into the door, but the house is so crowded they can't make it to Jesus. So what do they do? Uh, you all know this. They go to the roof. They dig through the roof. They lower the man down before Jesus so that he can be healed. And the remainder of chapter 9, verse 2 in Matthew says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, was this what uh, these men were expecting? Was this what they were expecting to hear? Was, Was this what the paralytic was expecting to hear? Did he come to Jesus to receive forgiveness of sins, or was he simply wanting to be healed of his uh, paralysis. Well, this is the second time in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus has had compassion on a person based on someone else's faith. We saw this first in Matthew chapter 8. 
with that Roman centurion whose, whose faith was so great, who knew that Jesus could heal uh, his servant from a great distance. And so he said to Jesus, it is not necessary. I am unworthy for you to come under the roof of my house. Simply say the word and my servant will be healed. And because of this man's faith, Jesus healed his servant. And here we see this. That because of the, uh, the four men's faith, he heals this man. Jesus takes compassion on this man. But it doesn't take the form that his friends expect. They're expecting Jesus to work a miracle like he's done before. They're expecting him to say what he said uh, uh, secondly, eventually. They're expecting him to say, get up and walk. You're healed. And so there was probably surprise at Jesus' words. We know there was surprise on the part of the, of the scribes. But I suspect that even the man himself who was healed was surprised by what Jesus said. Your sins are forgiven. And he calls this man, my son. He lays claim to him. Now there were many people here who were expecting Jesus to heal. And probably the vast majority of the people who had gathered inside this house, who had crowded inside the four walls of that house, were there for the spectacle of seeing Jesus heal somebody. And the renown of what Jesus could do was spreading far and wide, especially around the, uh, the Sea of Galilee and in this area uh, of Capernaum. And so uh, these people probably expected Jesus to do this and they regarded it as great entertainment. It was, the, it was the, the entertainment of the day. But instead of fixing what was obviously wrong with this man, Jesus first focused on his sins. And Charles Spurgeon says here, with a royal word, he pronounced effectual absolution. It just means that by speaking, Jesus declared that this man was forgiven. The sacrificial system required that in order to make atonement for sins, you had to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice. And the priest would receive that, and make atonement for your sins, and only then could you be declared forgiven. The paralyzed man did not have to do this, did he? He didn't, even, he didn't even make the effort to come before Jesus, did he? His friends brought him. And then what does Jesus do? In a sense, he, he forces forgiveness on this man. He gives this man something he wasn't even asking for. We speak of alien righteousness. This was an alien forgiveness. Uh, it was not what this man or these men expected. Jesus simply forgave him. Now, we do not like to think of ourselves as sinners. Human beings do not like to think of ourselves as sinners. So to tell someone that their sins can be forgiven is to tell that person that they are in need of forgiveness. It's to tell them that they are indeed a sinner. And people do not like to hear this. And so uh, the effect of this, the effect of not wanting to be told that you're a sinner is that we, we downgrade what sin is. We change the meaning of sin. And, and specific sins, sins which are called an offense to God in His sight, are called something less than sin. And, and, and nowadays, in our day, things that were once called sins are called normal behavior. People get offended when you tell them that they need to be forgiven of their sins. People get offended when you tell them that they are a sinner. And the same could be said for you and me. We get offended by this. But people getting offended by being told that they are sinners is the least of their worries. What people should truly be worried about is the fact that God is offended by their sin. 
And that when we all come before the Lord, when we all come before that seat of judgment and we have to stand before Him, and if we do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, we will face His judgment and His wrath because of our sin. The offense of God and our sin is such a big problem. It's big enough that in order to make us right with God, He had to do what? He had to send His only Son. This was the only way that He could make atonement, proper atonement for sins. And Matthew showed us back in chapter 1 that this was the purpose of God. The purpose for God ordering uh, all that took place uh, before Jesus came. Ordering these events of history. All of those names that you read in chapter 1. The genealogy uh, from the time of Abraham down to the time of Jesus' birth. All of those names. It's to show that God was ordering history for what? For Jesus himself to be born. And Matthew says in chapter 1 verse 21 that he did this in order for Jesus to save his people from their sins. This is why Jesus came. It was not primarily to heal people of their uh, disease and their affliction. It was to save his people from their sins. Sin is the primary affliction that we have. And this is the disease that Jesus came to heal. Well, let's turn now and look at verses 3 to 5. Who blasphemes? The scribes were offended. But it wasn't because they had been accused of being sinners. Verse 3 says, And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Now the scribes stand in stark contrast to the friends of the paralyzed man. They might not have expected their friend to receive forgiveness of sins, but they knew, they, had, they believed that Jesus Christ could do something for their friend. They knew that he could heal their friend of this irreversible condition. Now the only other time, the last time that the scribes have been mentioned so far in the book of Matthew uh, is back in chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. Jesus had just finished the Sermon on the Mount. He's come down off the mount. And the people, it says, are amazed at his teaching. They marvel at his teaching. He taught with such authority, not like the scribes. Well, this word undoubtedly got around. People hear about this. The scribes are probably feeling some natural animosity towards Jesus now. They see him as a rival. Uh, They've probably heard his teaching. And deep down, they know that he teaches with authority. The scribes don't say much in verse 3, do they? But in their brief sentence, they manage to get two things wrong. The first error leads to the second error. And the first error is that they thought that Jesus was an ordinary man. They thought he was an ordinary man. In fact, in the, in the original language, in the Greek, there is, the, the word man is not even present. They won't even use that word for Jesus. They simply say, this blasphemes. They consider him lower than man. They had just as much empirical evidence as anybody else. They had seen as much as anybody else about who Jesus was and what he was capable of doing. It would have been near impossible for them not to know about the healing of the leper, the healing of the centurion's servant, the healings of all the sick, as Matthew says in both chapters 4, verse 24, and in chapter 8, verse 16. They knew about these things, and yet they refused to believe. And as Matthew said, Jesus did all of these things so that the very scriptures that the scribes were supposed to know, the very scriptures they were supposed to know would be fulfilled. They of all people should have known that Jesus was fulfilling 
Those verses spoken by the prophet Isaiah. They should have known that Jesus was the Messiah. They should have seen clearly that Jesus was God in the flesh because he was doing things that only God could do. But to them, Jesus was just a man. Jesus was less than a man. And this led to their second error, which was to say that Jesus was blaspheming. Now, it is true. If they had been right about the first, they would have been right about the second. It is true. Ordinary men could not pronounce forgiveness of sins to another person. It is impossible. Even the priest in the Old Testament does not pronounce forgiveness of sins. In all of the Old Testament, when it is said that a person is forgiven of his sins, that pronouncement only ever comes from God himself, not from man. And we see this in the early chapters of Leviticus. In chapter 5, we read about a number of offenses that a person might commit. And in order to make atonement for those sins, he brings an offering to the priest. In Leviticus chapter 5, verse 10, God says, The priest shall make atonement for him for the sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. The priest doesn't say it. God says it. So in a sense, the scribes were correct that an ordinary man cannot pronounce forgiveness of sins. The scribes knew that God alone was able to pronounce forgiveness of sins. God alone could declare that a person was forgiven. But they failed to see that Jesus was God. And therefore, it is they who are guilty of blasphemy and not Jesus. They are guilty. And that is why Jesus says, why do you think evil in your hearts? They accuse God of not being God. And so they are guilty of blasphemy. Well, the interesting thing about God, uh, one of these things you probably already know, is that God knows the hidden thoughts of people. He knows what is in the hearts of people. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We are laid bare before God. We cannot hide what is in our hearts. We cannot hide what we do. We cannot hide what we say. And we certainly cannot hide what we think. And so whether these scribes spoke in a whisper among themselves off in the corner of this house, or whether they only thought these things among themselves... God knew what was going on and he knew their hearts. Jesus knew their thoughts. And revealing even further to the scribes that he is God, he says in verse 4, why do you think evil in your hearts? He's giving them further revelation of who he is. He's unwilling to give up on them just yet, it seems. Jesus does exactly that which will show the scribes that he is God. They should know now that he is God. He knows the scribes' thoughts. He calls them out on it. And he asks them why they think evil in their hearts. And then in verse 5 he says, For which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk? Which is easier? Jesus asks. He's challenging the scribes here. He's asking them, if you refuse to believe that I am capable of doing something that you cannot see, which is to forgive sins, will you believe if you see that I'm capable of doing something that only God can do? He's about to give them verifiable proof. He's given them verifiable proof already, but he's about to give them more. And this proof stared the scribes and the Pharisees in the face, and yet they refused to believe. You see, later on in the life of Jesus... 
in, in, in John's gospel, when Jesus raised a dead man to life, when he raised Lazarus to life, the Pharisees who saw this, what did they do? They didn't respond in faith. They weren't amazed that Jesus had just brought back to life a dead man, something that, that only in all the pages of Scripture only God has been able to do. God through, uh, by his own power, God through the prophets. But only God has ever been able to do that. And yet what do they do? They plot all the more to kill Jesus. They decide, now is the time, we've got to do away with him. Even with proof staring us in the face, we still need faith to receive, to receive this proof as truth. We must have faith. As Romans 1 verse 18 says, before we believed, we suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. We do everything we can to suppress the truth. We don't want to know it. And you see it in the world today. You see it. There's a sense in which it doesn't matter how much proof you provide to people. If they do not believe, they will not believe. If they do not believe, they will not recognize the truth for what it is. The proof is there. Plain for everyone to see. But in our sin, we actively refuse to see it. We actively refuse to believe that we are sinners and that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to die in order to save his people from their sins. Well, let's turn now and look at verses 6 to 8. The authority of the Son of Man. Even though these scribes are suppressing the truth, Jesus will offer the scribes further proof that he is God and therefore is able to forgive sins. He says in verse 6, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to to forgive sins. And then he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home, verse 7 says. Jesus cannot be accused here of being a charlatan or a scam artist. They have it right before their eyes. Dozens, perhaps a hundred witnesses see this. This paralyzed man rise and walk. He demonstrates that he is God so that the scribes may know who he is. Well, the effects of humanity's fall into sin are all around us. The effects are all around us. All you have to do is look around. You see it. And this man... By being healed, Jesus shows that he has the power. He has the power that only God has. He is able, visibly, to heal the effects of humanity's fallenness. And he does it with a word. But if Jesus is able to do this, doesn't it stand to reason, if Jesus is able to heal the effects of fallenness, doesn't it stand to reason that he is also able to heal the fallenness itself? Jesus, not only does Jesus treat the symptoms of disease, in this case paralysis, he is also able to treat the disease itself. And that disease is the cancer of sin. It's not enough for him to provide some sort of analgesic, some sort of thing that only uh, deals with the pain. He cures the sin. And he says that this man is forgiven. This is the authority that Jesus has. Because he is the Messiah. Because he is the Son of God. And we see that at this point his authority is on earth. He says that. So that you will know that that the Son of Man has authority on earth to to forgive sins. And then he turns and speaks to the paralytic. Jesus is extending the kingdom of God throughout the earth. This This earth which had been up to that point under the domination of Satan. But after his resurrection, as Jesus ascends into heaven... 
He will tell his disciples then in Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus' authority now is universal. It's universal. And then, some point in the future, when Jesus returns in glory, that universal authority will be made manifest. And every tongue will confess. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see a progression of this manifestation of the authority of the Son of Man. But in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus' authority is in being able to forgive sins. It was demonstrated by him telling this man to get up and walk. And it was demonstrated by the fact that this man got up and walked. And he went home. And despite the opposition of the scribes, verse 8 says that the crowds were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. They glorified God. They were afraid. They had, they had a, a proper fear that what had just taken place here. They had been in the presence of, of, holy, of the holy. But they hadn't quite gotten really who Jesus was. They hadn't gotten to the point of believing in Jesus as these paralyzed, uh, the friends of the paralyzed man did. And so they marveled uh, about God. They marveled that God had done this, but they marveled that he bestowed such authority on men. Well, Spurgeon, uh, speaking of this verse, said, Men may see, marvel, and even in words glorify God, and yet they may not accept his Son as their Lord. Evidently, they viewed Jesus as a man on whom God has bestowed special gifts, a prophet who had received miraculous power and used it on behalf of men. But then Spurgeon goes on to say, They went as far as they knew. They went as far as they knew. And if you read through uh, Matthew's accounts uh, in the gospel, it's not until Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, that finally Peter the apostle professes, he, he confesses Christ. He confesses Jesus as the Messiah. Well, throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus continues to preach the good news of the coming of the kingdom. He continues to drive out demons. He continues to heal people of their infirmities. But most importantly... He continues to declare that people are forgiven of their sins. Everything that Jesus said and did was to point to this fact. It was to point to the fact that by believing in him, that people can be forgiven. Everything that Jesus did ultimately points to the cross. And the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. In the place of sinful men and women. In the place of sinful children. And he did this for everyone who believes and repents. This is what drove Martin Lloyd-Jones from medicine into ministry. This is what pushed him out of the hospitals and into the church. He realized that a person could be physically healed but remain spiritually dead. And that there was nothing that he could do about it when he was only treating the body. We can be physically fit. But our bodies may just be the tomb of a dead person. Spiritual health is more important than physical health. And that is why Jesus forgave the paralyzed man's sins and then he healed him of his infirmity. That is why Jesus came. 
Jesus came to offer himself up as a perfect sacrifice in your place and in my place and in the place of everyone who confesses him as Lord. And that all that is required of us is that we repent and that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we will be saved. Repent and believe. Believe in Jesus and trust that he is able to forgive your sins. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for uh, this paralytic. And we thank you for this man's four friends who had the faith in Jesus Christ to drag this man to Jesus, to place him before Jesus in order that he might be healed. But thank you, Lord God, that you forgave this man's sins before you healed him. We pray, Lord, that we would recognize the importance of this sequence. We ask, Lord, that we would know how important it is that our sins be forgiven. But we also recognize, Lord, that you are concerned even with our physical ailments. And so we thank you, Lord, for the healings uh, that you perform. Call us now, Lord, to renewed uh, love for you. Help us to know that in Christ Jesus, our sins are forgiven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.